Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I have two books today, two authors, two individuals who have chosen the self-publishing path and only half an hour to get this all in. The first book, Fairy Tales Written by Rabbits by Mary Parker and Wimmera Journeys by Anne Brown. Now they seem dissimilar but both deal with notions of identity and belonging. So, Mary and Anne, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Thank you. And fairy tales is allegorical. Ostensibly, it's about the adventure of Heath and Millet, who find themselves isolated and eager to get back home. Wimmera Journeys is a more realistic journey, but one that explores the struggle of an an Indigenous young man taken to England in 1851. So, Mary, no rabbit ever, or no rabbit had wondered before the reader is presented with this notion before the actual adventure takes place. Um, Were you setting out to write an allegorical tale? I was setting out more to write a mystery adventure. So it's certainly an intriguing start to make you think, well, these are talking rabbits. When did they start talking? But also, when did they start thinking, that notion of of thought? And I I was just sort of correlating that with people in a way. Any intention to do that or not? Uh, There is an intention uh, that will grow over subsequent books as well. Oh, so this is part of a... This is intended as part of a series, yes. Oh, right. Okay. Now, we're sort of in a post-apocalyptic world. The lives of rabbits had changed since the night the dust fell from the sky. Now, how significant is then that backdrop? It gives you a reference for as they're travelling through the world they're unfamiliar with, you encounter all these human objects, but you never actually encounter a human. And that's giving you a clue as to why. Mm. Um, So it it then opens up the world to look at things differently, try and put everything in perspective from these creatures, which is much the same as what people are doing already. Well, everything's described from the rabbit's point of view. Mm. And these are wild rabbits. They don't have words for house or metal or street so it's quite different and difficult to understand what they're actually seeing and that's part of the mystery but also then uh part of the challenge as a writer too to be able to describe things that should be familiar to us but without being definite very much so so what were the challenges there so for example describing a brick wall for a rabbit that's never seen a brick Probably the closest thing would be scales on a lizard, how Mm. they all interlock and have that repeated pattern. And you've also got the fact that, um, well, they they discover a pipe, but it's a warren. It's a concrete warren sort of thing. They're trying to put it in the perspective of their world. Absolutely, in terms that they are used to, that they understand. Mm. And then we have the elders holding on to convention, the elders of the... the, um, Warren, what would a tribe? How do you describe what's a collective? Uh, As as a warren for the rabbits. Yeah. But Heath and Millet find themselves beyond the realm of the elders' jurisdiction. So what challenges do they therefore face? 
Well, mostly they want to survive, as rabbits do, mm. and to find their way back home. Yeah, well, they come across a long-tailed creature called Stairs at Moon. Is it a rat or a native animal? I'm just trying to. I was trying to work out what some of these creatures were. Uh, Stairs at Moon is a rat. A rat. I was just wondering whether you would have used um, Australian native animals or. I've used some, mm. um, but in the middle of suburbia, it's hard to to picture them surviving very well. And then you've got the small folk that the rat sort of uh, is a spokesperson for. So I was just trying to work out something smaller than a rat. The mice. The mice. Okay. But um, you've got then a sort of um, cooperation starting to emerge um, between these creatures. So I'm just wondering about that notion of cooperation and what you were trying to achieve there. That even though they're different, and they're very different, many of their goals are actually still the same. Mm. Well, in order to survive, they've got to cooperate. I mean, um, he's and Millet are sort of trapped in a concrete jungle, so to speak. Um, they need the cooperation of others. There's all of this negotiation that takes place in order to allow them to sort of well, begin their or begin their journey back home after they get uh, get trapped. These this is a realistic element. You've got these animals. We can sort of work out who they are. But then the book moves. Shall we say is that the right word? Um, transforms into a more fantastical uh, element, which is where we come across the fae. It's a fae. The unicorn replied. As the creatures watched, the orb of shifting lights grew taller and narrower. The bottom parts split into two long legs, though no tail, and distinct gossamer wings fluttered from its back. Two more legs split from the column near the top of its body, leaving a round head. The entire form glowed with the same three shifting colours, bright enough to cast shadows on the grass. Two large black eyes that produced no colour at all dominated its round, flat face. Are we talking a realistic creature here or not? We're not talking a mundane creature. Not talking a mundane creature. That sounds like a cryptic sort of answer. What do you mean? I mean there's lots of different things you could interpret the Fae as being, uh, but none of them are creatures you're going to encounter walking down the street. Right. So we have come across, um, well, a, a dragon or a serpent and a unicorn, but we can explain those creatures. So the unicorn is actually what? Cuddles the goat. Cuddles the goat. But Cuddles has sort of lost one of its horns. So it's it's a one-horned creature. It's a unicorn, uh, etc. So we have that realistic element. We've drifted into a fantastical world. And then the imagination takes over because then what happens to Heath? Uh Heath has a, a very near-death experience, and all, by all rights he should have died, but it's quite literally a miracle from the Fae that gets him through to the end of the story. The intention behind that transformation, is there a message there? What are you trying to communicate here? Basically hope, and that our world, although it's pretty mundane, can occasionally be fantastic. Interesting. So, yes, that Heath's transformation, virtually coming back to life, but he, he, almost a new creature, different... Um... Definitely a new way of seeing, mm. and in Heath's case, listening. And then this is taken back to the Warren. To their old Warren. So, therefore, that 
begs the question of what's going to happen in the sequel. It shouldn't tell us too much, but um, if a creature has been transformed, therefore going back to a traditional environment, having it changed, uh, which is all very interesting. Moving on now to Anne's book, it's another journey, but one very much um, sort of positioned in the realistic world. It's a, it's a true story in many ways. Anne. Oh, yes, it is. In fact, the whole book really is a, a retelling of um, a story of a, of a child um, who was taken to England as the story tells. Well, we're talking an Indigenous Yes, child. we're talking about um, in the 1840s, 50s, in the uh, early days in Victoria, in the Wimmera, uh, giving it away to start with. Well, not giving too much away, but just before we get onto that story, then your interest in this area and how you became involved in... Well, um, I... Uh, my background was in teaching mm. and then I moved from that into um, working in cultural anthropology and I was working with the Wachabalic uh, people in that area, now known as the, um, yes, it's still the Wachabalic people. Now uh, they have a different name to cover that, that whole area. But the Wachabalic people were one of those... Um, clans along the Wimmera River and white people moved into that area. The invaders um, arrived there in the fairly early 1840s and just at about the time that this boy would have been born. And it's an actual account. He was actually, um, how yeah. shall we put it, yes. or stolen. Yes, he was. Uh, yes, we, we talk about the stolen generation, but in fact there were generations and generations and generations of stolen children. And he was one who, um, when I came upon his story, when I was doing some research, uh, I kept coming across stories about this, this Willie Wimmera. And it intrigued me because the, there was obviously something had been written about him, but... Uh, most of the sources were actually secondary sources. So I, I tracked down the real story. Yes. And uh, when I, I was actually at the same time writing my honours thesis and I, some of the things that happened to him and subsequently uh, pertained to the subject of my, my thesis and I, in my drafts, I, talk, I spoke, wrote about this and my um, supervisor... Uh, said to me, you know, you chose to write this in the history department and the sort of speculation isn't suitable. So I thought one day I'll track it down and I'll, I'll write the story myself. How frequent, how often did this occur where um, tribal people were basically stolen and taken back to England, so to speak? Uh, in the very early days, there are a number, and of course the classic is Benelong. Yes. Uh, but there were a number of people like that. And it wasn't only in Australia. I mean, there were the Fijians, the Tongans, all sorts of groups were like that. I think really by the time it happened with uh, uh, Warrenook, and, and I have to say, I've called him Warrenook at the first part of the book. We don't know what his, his Aboriginal name. name was. Uh, by that time, by the 1850s, they were no longer sort of the, um, 
Exhibit A in the way they had been before. Now he was fodder for the church. He and that was the reason for taking him. He was going to be uh, turned into a good little Christian missionary. And so, yeah, there, there's all of these uh, agendas that are being imposed on Warrenook right throughout the story. Um, so much so that he, well, he's, he's struggling to find his identity. I mean, um, the book opens with um, virtually his initiation uh, and uh, trying to be uh, a member or a, uh, an adult member of the tribe. But you've got him speaking in two voices. What's going on there? Well, the, if I can just sort of answer that in a slightly different way. Go when I that. first wrote the book, I wrote it as a straight-out narrative in a third person, um, omnipotent sort of a voice, and it just didn't live. Because what I wanted to do was not only tell his story but tell the story of the people who he interacted with because I feel very strongly that although now we look back and say, how could people behave in that way? But the two other important people in the story, um, Horatio Elliman, who was the uh, settler who actually, you know, was was the person who stole, stole him, and Septimus, the Reverend Septimus Chase, really thought that they were doing the right thing. Mm. They didn't see anything wrong with that. And I wanted... It's not... It's a history that happened in this part of Australia. It isn't just the story of this boy. It's the interaction between... And I wanted to catch that. Well, you you, you provide, because you use different voices here, um, you provide the Indigenous perspective, but then the European perspective as well. Um, and so you start getting um, those other voices. So we do have um, Horatio Elliman, a squatter on 128,000 acres in the Wimmera River area, 150 miles from Melbourne, setting up a, a whole station. Um, you get uh, the challenges of these settlers trying to uh, establish themselves. I beg to inform you that on Saturday the 5th, the party of Aboriginal natives came to my station and drove away 650 sheep. On the Sunday the 6th, with the assistance of the tracker windbag, I located some 300 animals so badly mutilated they had to be destroyed. My overseer also discovered bones and burnt remnants some six miles away. I have recovered only 25 uninjured animals. I determined to apprehend the miscreant, and with windbag, my overseer and two men, I followed them for three days. Though all my men were armed and I had warned them against firing their weapons. We entered the natives' camp at 6am while they were still sleeping. There was some resistance, but we were able to capture a boy named Billy, aged about 12 years, and an elderly man much affected by some wasting disease. So here's a farmer trying to establish himself and no qualms about... Uh, no, no. Because he, he had no concept that this land actually did belong to somebody and that they were using the land. Mm. As far as he was concerned, they were a nuisance, and I mentioned that in the book. You know, that Well, the nuisance because uh, in some ways, well, the mutilation of the animals, what was going on there? Well, that was actually um, a very, well, I shouldn't say common, but there are several accounts, uh, well-documented accounts in Victoria at that period where Aborigines did, in fact, um, they... They sliced the Achilles tendon, I guess it is, uh, of the sheep, uh, which 
must have been horrible for the, well, for the sheep. For the sheep. <laughs> and for the people who owned them because, like Element, they had invested um, so much in them. We use the term squatter, but in though, and we sort of have a vision of, you know, some wealthy, but these, these were people who were really setting up. Now, why it happened, nobody actually is able to to tell. I see it um, and historians, you know, most historians I think would go along with this, that it was a form of guerrilla warfare. Uh, Aborigines in Victoria were not just the complacent people who moved out of the way all the time. There were in certain parts of Victoria, for instance, the down in the Western District, the Gunditjmara people fought an 18-year battle um, and in fact forced some families to move, white families to move. Right. So it's in that sort of a context. Right. You then, then um, well, um, Horatio and Billy sort of uh, get separated. Horatio's had cholera, so that leaves him isolated. He gets picked up by Septimus Chase. Um, and uh, just a, a, an interesting bit here. I have spent the last days finishing off my reports to La Trobe and the missionary board in Melbourne. I know they will be anxious to know of the progress I have made in converting William to the Christian faith and in his preparation for the fulfilment of his destiny. <laughs> what I wanted to get across, he was this little boy, about probably about 10 at this stage, who had lived in totally... T- um, Tribal life taken to Melbourne. I mean, the, I account for. The, I mentioned the fact that um, he thought white women had no legs. Uh, what did he make of a house and a building? The first building, really substantial building, is in a schoolroom where he's taken in a schoolroom. And I tried to sort of convey how would that have been? And then into this room comes Septimus Chase who sees things from, he's very much an evangelical, he's come to the colony to convert the Aborigines, and he has, you know, his road to Damascus, and the Lord showed me this was the boy. But it's this imposition of Mm. somebody else's will on another and thinking it's perfectly legitimate. What happens to Billy is he's taken um, over to England, but it's that journey on the ship that is the most revealing to me anyway because this is where billy actually finds himself am i going a little too far there or um no i i interestingly we know that that was the ship that he went on that that um he is in the the ship's manifest it says the reverend septimus chase and servant so he was down as a servant and we know also that uh, and it was a six-month journey without, without stopping anywhere. Uh, that he, that was the time that the minister tried to convert the boy, and he. The, what I wanted to get the idea that Warrenook was beginning to, I think, understand that he he had lost what had gone before. He had to now find who he was in this this world, and he, in fact, he did. Yeah, he well, he he has an affinity, or um, is able to look after a child on board ship. He is able to interrelate with the seamen, and he he almost finds that naturally. Yes, and instinctively. Yes, 
and yet you've got Horatio, you've got Septimus, neither of whom recognised no. who he was, what his qualities were, and they are both um, aggrieved that uh, Billy is not grateful or not applying himself to... Willie, Willie. Willie, yep. to, their, to their strictures. That's uh, right. Yeah, and, and just how we got it all wrong, yes. so wrong yes. in, in that regard. So this is um, that journey, and um, he is, Willie is buried in England. Yes. He, he was taken to Reading, and uh, I've just actually come back from Reading where I um, was meeting up with a librarian of Reading uh, there because actually he's remembered. Um, when I first went to Reading in search of, of his grave and for documentary evidence, I contacted the local authorities ahead of time and sort of said this is what I was doing. And so I got directions as to where to find him because he's actually not in a churchyard as you kind of sort of expect, but in what was the first um, graveyard there. It's no longer used and it's all overgrown. But they had cut, they had mown all the grass and cleaned it all up for me. And I found out then that one of the local primary schools had actually become interested in him and the year before had done a very big project on him. And when I was just last in Reading, just two months ago, at the library, they actually gave me this little booklet that had been produced about Willie. So I, I feel very close to him. Mm. I have... Um, taken soil from his country and put on his grave. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I was just wondering about that, whether the, the bones would be reinterred or no, brought back. No, no, that's not, that's not a... A um, feasible No, outcome. and because he is properly buried and he yeah. is buried with great love and respect. Mm. Um, mm. And in the records, uh, Septimus Chase paid three guineas for his... Headstone and a footstone he oh. has too, and there's an engraving on it. And on the end of the book, there's actually a photo of, of his gravestone. But an interesting journey, uh, interesting characters in both books and their journeys, but now we move on to the final element, this sort of self-publishing journey that you've both gone on. So this is sort of hopefully an open discussion, um, but um, what was the impetus behind the self-publishing, Mary? Uh, for me, I wanted to be able to choose my own illustrator for the book and I wanted to get it out quickly. I didn't want it sitting on a slush pile for years and years because it was written as a gift for the Big Ears Animal Sanctuary um, whose co-founder Jackie Steele has breast cancer. I didn't want it to wait for years and years because that's a long time in that situation. So you, you've sort of got the, the uh, profit or the such like going to that they it goes to the Big Ears Animal Sanctuary, yes. Right, so you can determine sort of the the direction for funds and and such like. Um, and how did you go in about getting it published? Uh, I went through a, a distributor and a printer called Ingram Spark, right, which is in Melbourne, mm -hmm. so I don't have to pay terribly much for shipping. Uh, and that will distribute it through most of the online stores for me as well. All right. Anne, how about you? What was the impetus behind... Well, mine was quite different. I, I spent many years working on this book and then, then it sat 
because I thought, you know, it's too hard. The whole publishing thing was too hard. And I knew from various writing groups and authors and things that, you know, the days I was sending off the manuscript and, you know, getting back the letters is long past. So I had already... um, experimented with it's not quite a a very nice way to describe what my earlier attempt but I have a a, another book published uh on a completely different subject uh previous yes in 1914 uh 2014 sorry I I decided to publish that as an e-book only and with the idea I wanted to see what that journey was like oh, journey there we come back there to it go. before this other book which I I saw as very important I did that and I um, I did that through Australian publication company mm. and that was quite a, a good experience but I knew I wanted this as a hard copy book so I did a lot of research uh, and eventually decided on ex libris which is part of the penguin group and uh, it has been reasonably expensive, mm. but uh, I haven't taken any of the lines that they would have liked me to as far as publica- uh, publicity and going to book fairs and all those sorts of things, which weren't going to sell a book like this anyway. But it, but it is now available anywhere on the world by their kind of book buying um, system. Yeah. system. Well, yes. how, I mean, in terms of marketing, I mean... Mary, what have you done in getting the book out there? Um, most of it online. Um, because all the funds go to the sanctuary, the sanctuary's been quite happy to tell all their followers about it. Mm. Um, and I've got my own blog and many of those readers have picked up a copy as well. So it's it's a case of that networking that exactly. distributes the book rather than the, the ordinary or well, the, the normal distribution channels and such like. And? Yeah, look, I I think that whole networking thing is more and more becoming the way that it has to be. I mean, I've got sitting in my bedroom, you know, the the classic boxes to be distributed, but I'm now much more relying on networking. Now, I started off doing a blog and quite honestly, it wasn't my thing. So I use Facebook Um not that I'm a great Facebook fan either, but I think that that networking um, system, I hope, is sort of, you know, well, working. You've got an opportunity. More esoteric books can come out. We had somebody yes. once here uh, that Jan interviewed on, on the parrots of, of the Dandenong Rangers. Now, no commercial publisher would touch it. Exactly. But because this person was in touch with... Um, sort of uh, the societies around the world that are interested in, in birds. Um, I've forgotten the name. What's the word for? Um, a- a- avarian. Avarian groups? Ornithologist. Ornithologist. Oh, yes. Given given that, that Mary's a vet, she has the, the, the right vocabulary. She was able to get in touch with uh, all of those groups. So, therefore, uh, she could reach that market, which is a very esoteric um, yes. singular one, but therefore it made the production of the book viable. So were you both um, worried about the sort of financial concern or aspect in getting it out or it was more important to get the book out and not worry about the finance, Mary? Uh, Because it was a gift, it was more important to get the book out there Mm. and any financial benefit was purely a bonus. Right. 
Anne, of course. I'm a bit inclined to, to give the same answer. This is a, a story that I felt really needed to be told. I hope, when I worked it out, I thought I have to sell 250 copies to break even. even. Yeah. And if I make anything beyond that. Nevertheless, one has a dream. What I would love it to be picked up in schools, I think there is a real place for it. And until we kind of wiped Indigenous history off our books t- five years ago, there was a place for it. I've well, got to pick there up is that a. Up. I th- they're trying to get more of it into the curriculum yes. in terms of these stories. What What is interesting is, yes, um, how little we know of these sorts of stories, and yet it is available. It is, and and ha- what we tell about um, Australian culture and and identity is very yes. important. But it's a bit like um, Heath. Uh, in your book, Mary, getting that message out. Obviously, that's going to be his challenge in in the sequel that follows. Will you be able to pick up on sort of the, the market you've produced to... Will it be so. easier getting the next book out? I think so, definitely. Yeah. Have you got another book in the, in the offering? Well, Anne? there is actually um, a real follow-up to this book. I don't know whether I have the energy to do it. I should... Um, and I'm being urged to, but it, but there really is a, a true, absolutely true sequel to this. Right. Um, yes. I'm having a rest at the moment You're, from that. But given that both of you are in here because of the impetus of uh, other people, uh, I think it's uh, very important. We've got ruminations at the door waiting to come in, so we're going to have to uh, round up now. But look, Mary, Anne, thank you very much for coming in today and uh, all the best with the ventures um, ahead. So we will uh, bow out now and make room for rumination.